My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. this practical episode. It is early summer, Beltane, Beltana, and I'm going to give some ideas around the kinds of activities that seem to happen most at this time of year due to the energy of young summer and to what's happening around us. So I'm going to start off with talking a bit about the last of the stored foods is going and the new foods are only just coming. The earliest things that are in the garden are very small, young greens, and there are spring greens underneath the canopy of trees before they're fully in leaf and they're just coming through in May and will finish up quite quickly. But it's a time of year when, as you get that vibrancy of young green growth, you can do a lot with that to help fill the nutrient gap and the hungry gap until other vegetables and other foods come in in season at this time of year. Through the whole winter, People have tended to eat more fats and carbohydrates. And as you come in through these early spring greens, it's great to make use of those in some way or another. So I'm just going to talk through a couple of the very practical and just a few plant examples of ways that you can make use of the growth of early summer in your own nutrition for now and how to preserve some of that for the coming year. I also am bringing to this practical thread a view around the idea that all of these things can be made accessible to an individual, to a community, to a collective, to a cooperative, to production at the local level. And each of those can be very empowering when you realize the resources that are all around us, even in a time of perceived scarcity. One of the things that the wider system we live within of late-stage capitalism, which I mention a lot in other threads of this podcast, one of the consequences of being in that system and being pushed to consume, to be consumers, to promote growth, All of that can feed into the narrative 
that's very important for consumption, which is the narrative of scarcity. And while, of course, there are areas of the world that truly experience scarcity down to political factors, there is most scarcity in the world is created scarcity in order to keep things commodified, whether that's food or clothes or cosmetics or buildings, everything that we can produce in order that people feel like it is scarce and in order that markets can be controlled and therefore at the bottom end of the capitalist system are those producers that can be most exploited in order to bring value to a product sold somewhere else but kept at the right level of scarcity. The other thing that is pushed within that is, of course, the feeling of inadequacy so that there isn't enough for everyone and that you need particular things in order to be worthy or feel like you have a kind of value in society, the clothes you wear or the makeup or the hairstyles. And it's been a very interesting outcome of a year where people in the West couldn't access all of that care unless they were the super rich, which I presume still accessed all of their hair and makeup and whatever else they do to their body enhancements. But a lot of people in the Western world haven't had access to their hairdressers or their shopping or their clothes. And it's an interesting piece to think about the fast fashion, the consequences of the food system, the way in which things are made. And a lot of what I'm doing in this practical thread is trying to connect people to trying out something in the making it yourself world. Because I think that whether it's growing something or building something or making something, when you become a primary producer from first principles of food, of something from starting from the base ingredients, then you're connected in some way to understanding what the producers of the world do for us, what it means to be a producer, a maker. And it gives some perhaps empathy for all those producers across the world that we can benefit from if we are able to sell our own labor into the system somewhere and, and obtain a wage and then go to supermarkets or to craftspeople or mass manufacturing and buy something that we want to fill a want or a need. So that's the context in which I want to introduce some of the really simple things you can do in a, as I say, even when things are perceived to be scarce, there's still a great deal of food available. I wanted to talk a bit about some of the Hungry Gap foods and then maybe a little bit about things that you could do in terms of care products as well as things that you could eat. One of the first ones that I want to talk about is pestos, because anything edible and green can be turned into a pesto. And we think of pestos as basil pestos often in Europe because of the gorgeous basil pestos that come out of Southern Europe. But in Ireland, we have a wild garlic that's in May just about nearly finished. It has probably gone into white flower heads, but all parts of that is the rams and the wild garlic can be preserved. 
making wild garlic pesto. But you can also use nettles, which are still abundant at this time of year. You can use chickweeds. You can use any part of a brassica family. So if you had some brassicas in the garden that have been going to seed or getting tough, if you nip out their tops and let them grow just a little bit more, you'll get some young leaves from chards or or any kinds of kales and cabbages, some of the nice trees. So how do you make a pesto? It's really very easy. It's just an oil, a leaf, and a seed or a nut. I often use sunflower seeds or pumpkin seeds are really delicious to make a pesto. And if you've had those dried, or you've bought them as dried seeds, then you need to soak them overnight to soften them, to make them easy to blend into your pesto. And then after that, it's really just a question of picking leaves, giving them a rinse and a shake to dry off most of the moisture in them, and then chop them up roughly. Use a nice quality oil. There's a local rapeseed oil here near me, but you can use any oil, an olive oil or a good quality organic oil. And you just play around with the quantities of adding some seeds to the oil, some leaves to the oil, and you can end up with a kind of thick paste of a pesto that you could spread on a sandwich or with more oil. You can have a thinner one that will go on pasta. So you can really make pestos out of any green leafy edible. A way to preserve that then is if you don't use it all in one meal or on a salad or on a sandwich, a way to preserve it is to put the pesto in small containers in your freezer. And that way, when you need it again, you can just lift it out and defrost it by cutting it up into lumps in pasta, for example. Because you're putting wet plant material into oils, it is best to freeze them if you're not going to use them within a day or two in the fridge because it is possible for plant material in oil to grow bad bacteria. And so you don't want to do that. But if you freeze it, you can have them for as long as you want. Another thing that I like to do with especially older leaves of brassicas that I'm probably going to pull out of the ground, I often leave them for a bit longer because the kales often put up uh, lovely shoots which you can eat and stir fry, and then they turn into the lovely yellow flowers that the bees come and and love. So I tend to leave them as long as possible. But you have these kind of tougher leaves of winter. And if you have a dehydrator, or if you have an oven that you can put on its absolute lowest setting, a nice way to use up those big leaves and still get the dense nutrition that's in them is to dehydrate them and turn them into some kind of kale chip or If I really dry them out thoroughly, I crunch them up into kind of tiny flakes and mix them in with a good bit of seaweed powder, like a kelp powder, and maybe some fried and and browned sesame seeds. And they're a nice condiment for scattering over salad or other meals. If you're making them into kale chips, it's also nice to rub them first with a little bit of oil and maybe sprinkling of something like sesame seeds or sprinkle a bit of Cajun spice, if you like, spicy kale chips. 
So dehydration of leaves, continuing that, another thing that you can begin to dehydrate, and you don't need to do these in an oven, although you can, or in a dehydrator if you want them quickly, is teas. So at this time of year, lots of the herbs are putting on abundant growth, and it's a really nice time to collect that the some of the young leaves as teas. So whether that's fennel teas at this time of year is really nice, but also hedgerow teas like hawthorn leaves, mints that are coming, all of those can be dried very easily and saved as tea. So you can do that, as I say, either in a very, very low oven, like just barely on, or a dehydrator, or you can hang them up upside down, wrap a bit of string around their stems, and put a paper bag over them to catch anything falling, and hang them in a warm place for a couple of weeks, and then you can break off the leaves and just store those in dry, clean jam jars and keep them out of light, and you'll have quite long-lasting herb teas. And of course, you can do exactly the same thing for preserving your cooking herbs, because again, you've got so much growth as the light comes in that you can take a good cutting of something like oregano or marjoram, and you'll be able to do the same thing, put them in hanging upside down, put them in a paper bag, take them when they're dry and crunch them up and put them in jars, keep them out of sunlight. And that will allow you to have really lovely fresh herbs. You can, of course, freeze herbs too as a way to have them fresh. But I like drying them out and having them from this time of year. Those are just some of the things that you can make out of what's coming as spring greens or young growth. Another thing that you can do with the blossoms that are coming is make infused oils. And those are really lovely for looking after your body and looking after your skin or your aches or pains, especially at this time of year when as spring is built up and as you get into early summer, activity levels tend to increase, whether it's walking or gardening or doing something more outside. And so you might be quite stiff and sore in places. And there's some nice infused blossom oils that you can make for both your skin or your aches and pains. And they're incredibly easy to make. So three flowers I'm going to just talk you through to make an infused oil, the daisy, the dandelion, marigold or calendula. And so each of those have different properties. I learned only about daisy this year. Each year I learned something more about a particular plant and you it's like getting a new friend. You get into a relationship with a plant and you spot it and you say hello to it and it tells you things and you kind of begin to remember its name and then things about it. But there are others that you've known for a long, long time, like an old friend and something new about them reveals themselves. So a friend who's a herbalist recently told me about Daisy being a bit like Ireland's Arnica but it has similar properties to the arnica plant, which is a terrific plant for strains and bruising. Apparently, daisy has much the same properties. So daisy's got great properties. Dandelion, also good as an oil for massage and also some aches and pains. And then calendula for skin and for abrasions. And that's marigold. 
Um, so how you make the oils for them is get a good quality organic oil. It can be sunflower oil. It can be something else, not smelly or strong, just a light organic oil. Could be um, rapeseed oil, for example. And pick a large amount of the blossoms, of the best looking blossoms of daisy, of dandelion, and of marigold. And you can let them dry somewhere if they've had any rain on them or they, they've got dew on them or they're moist in any way. Let them dry a little bit, but not too much, just enough that the moisture evaporates off them. And then get a clean jam jar and pour in a little oil and then drop in a handful of blossoms and then pour in some more oil and drop in more blossoms. And you can be doing this with just the petals. You can kind of prick out the, the round part that's holding the petals together. Or you can put in most of the head, maybe taking off as much stem as possible. And you keep packing them in and packing them in and giving maybe uh, the jam jar a bit of a shake or a tap, and pack in more. And then make sure that the last layer are completely covered in oil and put the lid on tight. And you can do that with all three of those. And then you basically leave them somewhere warm. It's possible to sun infuse them where you put them in a sunny windowsill. Um, but it's also possible just to do in a warm part of your house because you don't want too much sunlight on them. That can actually break down some of the medicinal properties you're looking for. And just shake them um, for a while. And then after a few weeks of letting the properties of the petals and of the plant infuse into the oil, then strain them off. So you can just put them through a very clean sieve into a much smaller container as you discard the petals themselves. And that's an infused oil. But it's interesting when people are buying quite expensive cosmetics, one of the things that I think is helpful to remember that your skin is a living organ of the body. And just like you can eat good foods for your liver or your stomach or your kidneys or your heart, you can eat good foods for your skin, but you can also feed the skin directly on the skin. And that's what a lot of the cosmetics are doing. They are feeding your skin with some nutrients and they will get into great lengths of describing what kind of nutrients they're doing. But actually, something that is quite fun to do is that all of the good foods that you can think of are also quite good for the skin. So you can use raw porridge with some lukewarm water in it, and you get a kind of a face mask that you can use. You've seen all the pictures of people with cucumbers on their eyes. That really is good. It gives nutrition and lightly to the skin around your eyes. So do tea bags. But you can also use on your face a little bit of honey and water. It sounds sticky, so it's something to do maybe before a shower um, or at the very end of a shower. It's not that sticky. And you just put honey onto your, onto your skin. It's really full of nutrients and your skin will absorb those. You can also try yogurts is another one that you can try. So you can make oils like calendula for your skin and you can make oils for massaging in aches and pains. You can also make an ointment out of those oils 
if it's easier to hold on to and to rub on in small quantities. And again, I've learned this off of two of my friends, one, Judith Hode, who you've heard me interview at the beginning of the podcast series, taught me one method and a friend recently, the one that told me about daisies, um, showed me a similar method. And basically, you gently heat up about 50, a ratio of 50 to 50, the infused oil you have with beeswax. And you melt the two together slowly and carefully. And then if you've done about 50 to 50, so you can keep that in a jar. The best kind of jars to use when you're storing things like this are dark ones. So you can either buy dark jars or if something you get comes in a jar, save it for this kind of thing because light does break down the properties that you've extracted from the plants. So it's good to keep them in a dark jar. Other part of this episode that I'm going to get into now is a bit about the plants and what's happening in the garden. So we did a lot of seed sowing over the last few months, and I talked about that on the practical episodes. And now we've got some plants getting transplanted directly out of seed modules into the ground outside, but quite a few are also getting potted on and then hardened off before they go outside. And that's been particularly pertinent this year because we've had a very cold May so far this year. And so whenever you're planting things outside, there are lots of books. And as I've talked about before on this thread of the podcast, the books and the videos and the courses are all absolutely terrific to give you a sense of what might happen at what time of year and what your planting calendar might be like. But it's also really important to pay attention to your local conditions and to take your time if the summer is slow to arrive. Because the plants will go out and they'll sit in the cold and they won't grow. And they may be growing just minuscule amounts. And the life in them is trying very hard. And as the light comes, they will respond. But they don't need to be out until it is warm in some instances. But in some instances, it's best to wait till it is truly warm. And so that means potting on things that have been in small seed compost modules into something bigger with a more fertile medium. If the plant is quite big, you could use garden compost to pot on because you'll see the plant and you'll be able to distinguish it from the tiny germinating weed seeds that may come up in your garden compost. If your seeds have been planted in modules, then it's very easy to transplant. You just put your finger in the bottom of the module, pop out the little block, fill up a pot with potting compost, open up the soil, tuck in your plant, and it will be delighted with the new nutrients and it'll get going in no time. And if it's really cold, as it has been, I would sometimes do that more than once. I might pot on into a much bigger pot and keep things going if I'm worried that the conditions outside, what's called a cold check, which just sets them back having come from maybe a warm windowsill or greenhouse. So it is difficult if you don't have a lot of indoor spaces. And another way you can handle that is by using some kind of a cloche or horticultural fleece that you cover your plants over with so that the cold weather is not affecting them as much. They're in their own little microclimate. 
I used to make cloches with old windows just propped up like as a pyramid, a sort of triangle over the plant. You could make miniature cloches by cutting up a plastic bottle and turning it upside down and putting it over a plant. Or you can use horticultural fleece, which you put hoops over the bed and you put the fleece over that and that creates a little microclimate. And that can definitely help if you don't have a lot of space to keep things potting on and potting on indoors. So then the last thing that I want to talk about is something that I didn't touch on when I went into compost, but something that I see in a lot of the Facebook groups that I would be part of also just comes up in visitors to our small holding. It's something that comes up in conversation that I'm in, in the permaculture world, in regenerative agriculture, and essentially is the continuation of the cycling of nutrients back through the ground. And so what I'm going to talk about is compost toilets. Because compost toilets are a part of the system of potential regeneration of getting off grid, or what that means is not needing to plug into stressed systems such as the sewage systems that exist at the moment in Ireland. One of the rationales for compost toilets, particularly in rural areas or in low-impact living or off-grid living, is because the system of composting human manure is very manageable if you get enough information for a small household. It's more complicated for cities and towns to deal with human waste in any other way than they have for centuries, which is better and better sewers that take it out to sea. But the problem with that is that we are slowly but surely depleting the land of nutrition, specifically of phosphorus. And recently, because of this, because of nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium being used in industrial agriculture and the lowering availability of phosphorus as a mined mineral, there's been big technical complicated investments in trying to recover phosphorus from sewage before it is flushed out to sea to use on the land. So at a micro level or a small community level, it's definitely very viable to not plug into that draining away of a resource from the land, but to manage it and put it back into the cycle of the land management practice. So this is a topic that has all sorts of connotations for people, but I kind of like thinking about it in terms of taking care of our own shit. And that can speak multitudes to personal responsibility versus structural changes we're trying to bring about in the collective activity. But it is something that we've been interested in since we visited our first compost toilet in a wolf farm in France many years ago. And I have probably been a connoisseur of compost toilets all over Europe and increasingly all over Ireland. 
And there is a terrific book that all of us that have experimented with Comtos toilets have probably read. It's called The Human Manure Handbook. And at the beginning of this Human Manure Handbook, the author says that there are nations who pee in their drinking water and nations who do not. And we in the West are the former. What that means is that we put a great deal of energy and organization into creating reservoirs and filtration systems and checking and monitoring our water supplies and making sure they don't have bad bacteria in them, like E. coli, for example, and getting that to come out a tap as potable water, meaning it's drinking water. It's very high quality drinking water. And that's the standard that is made for drinking water. If you're ever trying to do water harvesting to turn it into drinking water, you'll see how much the regulations require of you to test it and in some instances to add things to it as well. Why do we then take that, use that same potable water to flush our sewage away? Once the potable water is contaminated by human wastes, it takes all that energy on the other side to clean it up and deal with sewage, as I was talking about. Whereas a compost system is simply allowing good bacteria to thoroughly break down waste, as it does with all other animal manures in an ecosystem. And one of the other things that the Human Manure Handbook talks about is the difference between a composting toilet system and what's called a pit latrine. And pit latrines were used by the army when I was young. They were also used in scouting and guide groups in camps, where you dug a trench and you situated the latrines or the toilets, which were sometimes pretty basic, over this trench, and you moved on because you were nomadic. It was assumed as an army, and you filled in the trench, and that was how you dealt with the waste from humans. However, apparently, a pit latrine will contaminate an area of up to 100 square meters around it through that volume of waste being in the soil and being concentrated in one place, it'll leach into the soils and E. coli and bad bacteria can pervade in those soils and be dangerous then to humans or other creatures. Whereas a compost toilet, even if it's a below ground compost toilet, which is the least ideal, which I'll talk through in a minute, but even if it's a below ground compost toilet where there is some composting material, and some access to air, so the hole's not covered in, so you have straw or any other kinds of woody material, a bit like the woody material that goes into a compost heap, is added as a composting material, and that the addition of that means that bacteria can start breaking down the carbon woody material, and that breakdown means it doesn't contaminate the area around it. So how do you build a compost toilet? It's really, really simple. You can get pretty elaborate. Um, you can have above ground high rise compost toilets. You can have um, full buildings made to house compost toilets. 
but you can. And if you're living in a, the countryside and you have a large garden or a small holding, this is something that you can do is just have a toilet space somewhere safe that you feel content to have a toilet space away from other people. Um, so you, you just create a place where you're going to put a toilet and without having to do any plumbing or plug in pipes or anything like that, you can simply make a really easy, emptyable compost toilet. And that is basically a wooden structure and box. You can take off cuts of timber and you want to get kind of the height that you're comfortable sitting and you want to get a toilet seat. So it's really a cube or a rectangular box. And then underneath the box is a bucket. And I've seen some really lovely versions of this where you need to just learn the basics of sawing and making hammering a nail in or drilling and screwing in nails. Because as long as you use relatively thick timbers to create your box, and then you can decide if you want sides on the box. But if you're using two by fours or something around that dimension of a timber, it's going to be perfectly strong enough and braced. And you basically make that through overlapping parts of your timbers with each other, hammering and screwing them together and coming out with a 3D square or rectangle. And then needs to be high enough for a bucket to slide easily in and out. So you want then to have a, a, a lid with a hole and you can cut that through a slice of um, something like marine ply, a little bit more awkward sawing that way. If you have access to a jigsaw with a small blade, that's a very easy way to make the right oval shape, but you could make it quite a square hole and then put your round or oval toilet seat, a traditional toilet seat screwed on top of that. And then you have your same usual shape. If you have a couple of buckets, you can cut the bottom out of a bucket. And if you put that through the hole, that will actually act as a kind of guide down to the next bucket so that there's a rim inside your compost toilet kind of all the way around. That can be quite helpful. Also something you can then wash just like you would a normal toilet bowl. And so then you have your bucket underneath. And then beside you, you want some kind of a container for your mulch material. And that can be, as I said, chopped straw. It can be shredded newspaper. It can be shavings from a wood shop. Sawdust, not as great a material because it tends to just clump up too much but you could mix that with a looser material from time to time. And then where do you put it? So you fill your bucket and you can slide it back out again from under your compost toilet. And where do you put that? Well, generally speaking, you want your own separate human manure heap to allow the composting process to continue. And you might want to layer in more material if you think you need some more shredded paper, straw, as you build a heap in much the same way as you build a food heap from scraps from your kitchen. And so you layer that with your straw and keep it covered so that you're not leaching nutrients and in this case pathogenic bacteria until the hot 
compost heap is heated up, there still could be some bad bacteria for humans. And so you want to maybe put some cardboard over the top of that, not have it be rained on, and let it just compost away and it will break down like any other compost. And then people often ask, where would you put that compost? Would you put that on your annual food garden? If you were a very confident human manure producer, it is possible to do that. And in fact, in the past, human manures were used extensively in China in food systems. And apparently all the gardens of Versailles were grown on human manure. And so it is possible to do that. But if you're not confident that you're breaking everything down, that the heap is getting up to a really high temperature to kill off any nasty bacteria, then what you can do is use it under trees or under hedges or anywhere else once it's broken down very well. And then it will break down some more in the soil and the trees and the fungus in the soil will take up the nutrients and distribute it across your system. Of course, this is really only likely to happen with people who've got a decent sized garden where they can keep their human manure heaps out of sight, away from people, because it's interesting how we've become very detached because of the flush system that's existed since Victorian times in the West. We've become very detached from literally dealing with our own shit and it has a lot of taboos it has a lot of kind of feelings of ick and yuck i think i was find it fairly easy to get on board with having a compost system for the environmental reasons but also it wasn't too much of a big deal to me having had four children and lots of um yeah lots of dealing with with poop. So it is something that if you've also dealt with animal manures and you've moved piles of horse poo or other kinds of animal poo around, you get more comfortable, I guess, with this idea. But it's just something to think about. It is possible to make more elaborate systems. And one of the things that I've discovered people will always ask about the planning permission and what can you do in terms of are you allowed to have a compost loo? It's very difficult to find definitive answers to that question. But one of the things that I find, at least in terms of low impact toilets, is that outside of the planning, which really generally has to do more with dwellings and what the use of your building is and who's going to live in it um, and how many would live in it and then how will the waste be dealt with. But if you're talking about maybe an allotment system, or in our case, we have kind of a giant community garden really is what our social enterprise smallholding project is. We discovered that the conservationists and the EPA and the OPW have in the past recommended the use of compost toilets as the lowest impact on a natural ecosystem. So I believe there was a compost toilet for a time in the interpretive center, a teeny little interpretive center that was near the Landalock Lakes because that was less impactful than any other kind of dealing with human manure systems. And I've come across that a few times on mountain trails and those sorts of places where a composting system makes the most sense. So I think it's just a new edge that people are exploring in Ireland. There are, you can buy a fully made composting toilet with certificates from countries in the EU. Um, and they are 
effective and interesting to use, but they're quite expensive. And it's really a process of making use of a common sense understanding of how waste and bacteria interact to decompose and return nutrients to the soil. So speaking of the soil, I'm going to just finish off with one last thing, because as everything is growing exponentially at this time of year in early summer, people also want to know how to deal with weed management. I think that it's first maybe useful to define what is a weed. One way to think of a weed is just a plant in a place you don't want it. So it is, in fact, often a plant that is edible sometimes. There's weeds that you could do something with, like chickweed I put in salads or make pestos out of. So it's a plant that is often a wildflower that is doing something to the soil because the soil is being disturbed. So they're the opportunistic seeds that when disturbed soil happens, nature abhors that vacuum because the soil will get leached away and nutrients will be washed out of it by lots of the summer rain if it isn't covered up quickly. And so all those opportunistic weeds are part of a kind of succession of undisturbed soil. They'll come in and cover it with lots of quickly germinating weed seeds. So, of course, you can do traditional weeding methods, which is, if you're going to do that, it's best to keep ahead of weeds early on and hoe or weed as soon as they're little. And if you do do that, to do it on the dry days if you can, or to rake off the weeds if you can't, because otherwise little weeds in rainy weather, well, you could pull them out and leave them on the soil and they'll just reroot and get going again. So the other thing that I wanted to talk about as a weed management strategy is either dense planting or using mulches. So if you're working in an annual garden and you're planting, I'd say, some spinaches or some chards at this time of year, beetroot, for example, if you can bring along with those lots and lots of salads in trays and densely plant in between your main crop that will be your big chards later, lots of little salads, they will grow quite quickly and they'll do what the weeds are trying to do, which is cover up the soil and they'll kind of shade out those weeds. And if you plant them out as reasonably big plants out of modules, then they're well ahead of the tiny weed seeds that are germinating. And so they will cover out the crop and then you can be eating those out of the ground bit by bit. And as you do that, the chards or whatever are getting bigger. And that can be a really big help to weed management. The other thing you can do is mulches. So you can be maybe still emptying out compost heaps out onto annual gardens at this time of year. And as long as the layer of whatever was there from winter time isn't sick or densely weedy, you can put mulch straight on top of whatever green is there and do that kind of cover planting close together on top of it. And that will suppress the weeds sufficiently for you to be able to manage them. So 
top dressing with compost is a kind of mulching. The other kind is using some kind of organic matter. And this is interesting in annual gardens because it depends on what part of the country you are in, what part of the world you're in, how well this works for you is part of your system. I live on the east coast of Ireland, which although you wouldn't think it in the last couple of weeks, is generally the drier part of the country. And I can get away with straw mulches or even short mown grass around my plants because it doesn't seem to create too much habitat for slugs. But I have heard that people using straw, particularly in the west of Ireland, find that they have a lot of slugs living in the straw and then that doing damage to their plants. But you could use other kinds of mulch materials that you could lift up and help reduce the slug population. So one way to do that is to have cardboard boxes and kind of tear them up into good-sized strips. And you can use them as collars. You can put them across your beds and have just some strips across and around the edges of a bed. And then if it has been very wet weather, to go in the early morning and flip over pieces of cardboard and let the birds at any little slugs that are hiding in under there. You can actually do that with a plank too. At this time of year, just leave some planks sitting across the garden and flip them over in your early morning rounds and the birds will get any slugs that have gone in there to hide. You can also use a material that you can cut through and plant your plants through. So there is a bought horticultural material that's made out of maize and is a it's black and it looks like a plastic type of material mat that you can buy but it's actually made out of plant cellulose and therefore will degrade over time and that's quite good for plants like onions where you can just cut little x's and pop your onion sets in through those and they'll keep the weeds down so I hope some of those practical things today on this episode of the podcast encourage you to try out understanding basics of production and resource use in whatever system you're regenerating or interacting with. <laughs>